good day. This is Ed Gunger. Welcome to our podcast. Today we're wrapping up our conversation on the subject of prayer. We obviously just scratched the surface on this, but I hope that many of you will find ways to explore and to grow into what a robust prayer life looks like for you, right? Um, we've discussed simple prayer, which is prayer that's marked by a kind of childlikeness. Simple prayer is this instant on the spot praying, a kind of no preparation way to pray. It's beautiful. And then we shifted into the not so simple kind of praying, things like petition and intercession, formal prayers, like the Lord's Prayer, liturgical worship. And we saw that these kinds of prayer demand a, that we prepare ourselves and that we come into these spaces with you know, an attention to our motives, make sure we have pure motives and we have a focused heart and there's specific promises that we want to stand on, that kind of thing. And then we talked about the use of breviaries last time. These are prayer books, and I hope that you have had time to explore the world of breviaries. Uh, that was the one kind of prayer that was new to me completely about 20 years ago, and I have found them so grounding. Today, we want to shift and talk about physical praying, or when our spirituality gets physical. Uh, please remember when we talk about this that in the West, we are still deeply Gnostic, which is that idea that we make this dualism between physicality and spirituality as though they're mutually exclusive. And we do have a problem generally with physicality and sign and symbol. Um, and sometimes the signs and symbols of things like bowing and different stuff, they seem kind of weird to us. Uh, it, that doesn't mean that they are. It mostly means that we're unfamiliar with the actions or the whys that are behind some of the physical action. So these are the prayers that we do that are physical in nature. Most familiar to those of us that are charismatic are raising our hands, or I remember in the Pentecostal world, we would kneel at the altar. Things that were not so familiar to me or to us in evangelical charismatic world was doing like things like the sign of the cross or bowing. But there are other things, like even sitting is a kind of physical praying, where we sit in silence or standing or folding our hands in prayer. Physical praying carries a kind of sacramental aura to it, to these prayers. Not a sacrament, they're not sacraments, but they come close to them because something happens in us and in the Spirit when we do these, if we do these with intention, with open hearts, like raising hands. When you raise your hands, it engenders surrender and adoration and exaltation of God as a person lifts uh, his or her hands. There's a text, Psalm 28.2, that says, Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. These kinds of prayer are only effective by physically doing them, not by talking about them. <laughs> you actually have to lift your hands, right? We don't pray internally, I lift up my hands and my heart, Lord. No, we actually lift up our hands. Uh, these are the kinds of physical prayers where there's action involved. Take bowing, for instance. That's a little more opaque in the modern world, particularly in America, because we don't have any royalty. And there's nothing we really bow to. We actually have an aversion to this. But bowing is spoken of over and over and over again in the Bible, over 150 times. Here's one text example, Psalm 5, 7. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. 
Now, I, I remember as a young man bowing in a sense as I was kneeling at the Pentecostal altar. I mean, we would give ourselves to the Lord through that physical action, surrender. Bowing is written into the practices of the historical liturgy. So if you ever look at the um, what's called the rubrics in the Book of Common Prayer, doing a Eucharistic service, for instance, there's different times when you bow, when the, the cross goes by or when someone approaches the altar or during parts of the Eucharist. Um, the idea in bowing is to show reverence to God in the light of what the uh, um, what's being represented by an object or what's being represented in a particular action or something that's happening. It's an act of humility. It's an act of surrender. I mean, it can be a religious nothing too, right? Just, you know, empty action, but it can be more. Kneeling, as we mentioned too, is a kind of bowing, is something that has been engaged in worship for millennia. Psalm 95 says, come, let us bow down and worship him. Let us kneel before the Lord who made us. Now, I'm sure you have seen it at altars for revivalists. Uh, we see it kneeling encouraged in many breviaries during prayer times, usually during the confession of sin or uh, receiving of the Eucharist and the Eucharistic services, liturgical services. Again, this kind of physical prayer can make a profound impact on our soul. Here's another physical thing maybe you've never thought much about, clapping <laughs> or shouting. These are legitimate physical actions that we do. Psalm 47 and 1 says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with joy. In Psalm 42 and 4, it speaks of shouting. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. See, these kinds of physical actions of clapping, of shouting, they can ignite celebration in our souls and they declare God's ability to win over anything that we encounter in the world. I mean, I've been in services where clapping and shouting has erupted and something sacramental happened. I mean, things actually shifted. Standing is a kind of physical prayer. In Psalm 135, to praise him, you who stand in the Lord's temple and the temple of the courtyards. We generally stand to sing. We stand when we say the creed. We stand, the church stands historically as the gospel is read to show honor to the gospel. We stand during the Lord's prayer, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we do the exact opposite of standing uh, when we prostrate ourselves. This is another physical prayer that's described in the Bible, laying on the floor, basically. First Kings 18.39 says, When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and chanted, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I remember a story told by um, Richard War of, uh, of an Orthodox priest that he was aware of who had told him that he had a doctor in his parish that was really struggling with faith and uh, didn't know what to do. And the Orthodox priest just told him, listen, just prostrate yourself uh, a, a number of times during the day. It seems like he said 30 times. It was quite a bit. Just prostrate yourself. Don't pray. Don't say a word. Just prostrate yourself before the Lord. And he didn't see the guy for about a month. And when he did see this doctor, when the doctor came back, his eyes were lit. And he said, oh, my gosh. He said, something has ignited in me. Faith had grown in him. 
I don't know what it is about these physical things that we do, but they carry a capacity of power if we participate in them. Again, this prostration thing, I, I did see it when I was a kid at the altar. We would lay all over the altar uh, and experience some sort of a just abandonment to God. We do this also at ordination of priests or bishops. Uh, we'll ask them to lay down and we put them under a pall, like something you'd put over the uh, a casket, where the idea of them dying to themselves, dying to their past, and being welcomed into a new kind of living, married to the Church of Christ— and there's something very, very powerful that happens in that moment of prostration. In fact, I, I've heard uh, priests and in myself, bishops, um, myself in this experience, it was it's the most powerful part of the whole service. The Bible also talks about dancing as a prayer. Psalm 149 says, let them praise his name with dancing. I mean, how cool is that? Go and dance with God, right? So this is one of the spaces where we can unleash joy and, and celebration in God. Physical stillness, sitting is a kind of prayer. Psalm 46, 10 says, God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be praised in all the nations. I will be praised throughout the earth. How? In just simple stillness. This is a whole kind of praying, centering prayer that operates in this space of, of stillness and silence. Again, these, these physical prayers carry potential impact. These prayers nod to the fact that we're not just spirits wandering around in, in the earth inside a body sack. We're not just brains, right, in a stick, on a stick. They, they show that our bodies matter, that our physicality is part of us and is a gift from God. A lot of times we only think of prayer as this internal state of awareness and don't realize the power of bringing one's body and physical actions into the prayer moment. But physicality matters. Physical praying ends up influencing our emotions, and it turns out that our bodies are connected to our emotions and to our minds. Prayer certainly carries a cognitive nature, right, where you're using your mind, you're using your brain, you're using your reason. But it's more than that. It's more than mind or reason. Prayer is actually also an act of communication by which God confronts the whole of the person with his redeeming mercy, with his glorious presence. And that's why it involves not only the mind, but our bodies and our will and our affection. Um, another physical prayer is the sign of the cross, very ancient. Don't be thrown because the people that tend to use it, if you look around, or that, are, that seem to continue using it, and we think they made it up, but it's not true. But the Roman Catholics, the Anglicans, the Orthodox, all they've done is continued what had been done for millennia. And just because they're doing it doesn't mean it was made up or that it belongs to those groups any more than the Bible just belongs to the Roman Catholics or Anglicans and Orthodox because they were here before the Protestants were. We all carry the same history. We have access to the same kinds of things that are helpful, like the sign of the cross. Think of, think of, and just in the the secular liturgies that we have, like uh, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. We put a hand over our heart. It, it's a very liturgical action. I mean, it's secular liturgy, but it's still something that emotes feeling, that emotes, uh, you know, uh, a conviction of, of 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 pledging allegiance, right, to something. Well, that's the kind of thing that happens when you do something like the sign of the cross. It's like that. It's, uh, but it's 
it, it, it's it's involving our spirituality and our relationship with God. And the sign of the cross is integrated into the breviaries and to, that you'll run into, the liturgical worship that you uh, experience in any church that's leading into the liturgy. And over the centuries, there's all kinds of meditations that has been attached to this physical prayer. It's been there forever. It's not unlike shaking hands, right? That appears in the ancient world. But the way it appeared was that they were putting out their hand to show that they didn't have a weapon. Well, that turns into friendship, into agreement, to what it is today. It's lasted for thousands of years, even though the meaning of it has changed. Uh, the same thing with the sign of the cross. One of the beautiful meditations of the sign of the cross is as you're moving your hand from your forehead to your heart and then over to both shoulders, we're asking God to bless our mind asking God to bless our passions and our desire when you point to your to your heart or your stomach. And then the whole of our bodies, which is symbolized by touching shoulder to shoulder or the whole of our lives. So, so these f- physical kinds of actions actually can carry deep meditative and powerful impact in our lives. And it's not only the physical actions. They, that's why the church uses physical objects. They're so helpful, whether it's the bread and the wine or the water in baptism or the water that's used um, uh, just to um, uh, make the sign of the cross with. There's so many ways. Beads are used to pray. Pilgrimage are encouraged, where you go from one place to the other. Um, uh, is encouraged. Physical things like clothing, the alves, the collars, the stoles, all these things are deeply physical and they're reflective of things. You don't have to use all these things. Icons, candles, right? These are, you don't have to use all of them, but they carry something. They cry out something. And don't just write them off because they're weird, right? Um, As I said, just because they're unfamiliar to you. And maybe experiment with some of them. And you may discover that there's some real hidden treasure in that stuff. So two more physical prayers I want to mention before we're done here. One is, and these are hard ones. One is fasting. This is where you stop eating or stop drinking something. Just, you know, a lot of times in Lent, you'll give up something, pull away from it. The reason it's so powerful is because how it messes with our souls. Psalm 35 and 13 says, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. Fasting tells your mind to settle because your mind screams at you. I need food. (laughs) Your whole body is screaming at you. Listen to me, right? And so when you don't listen to your body, you have to humble yourself. There's something something deeply powerful that happens when we push away from physical food or the the way that physical hunger can almost overwhelm us. Um, and it actually is a physical expression of prayer. Jesus speaks to the power of this when his disciples were in a particularly difficult situation and they couldn't seem to get a breakthrough. And Jesus said, in essence, you, you won't get a breakthrough with just prayer on this deal. You need to fast. It has to be prayer and fasting. This doesn't change except by prayer and fasting. And notice he's basically saying that there are times when prayers need to be energized with physical action, which is the action of fasting. This kind of physical act, the refusal of food, carries potential that that very few people in the modern world have had experience with, right? Sometimes people think if they're hungry, they're going to die. That's not true. <laughs> you 
can go for quite a while without food. One of the reasons that Lent is so important to the spiritual life and why we encourage it is precisely because of this issue of fasting. This physical kind of praying adds and lends power to our spiritual formation. The last physical prayer I want to discuss may surprise you. It's it's giving. Giving away finances, giving away um, talent, your talent in some way, giving away time, service. Uh, there are four kinds of giving, particularly financial giving, that are articulated in sacred text. Tithing, free will offerings, what's called alms giving, and gospel giving. So let me explain these in reverse order. Gospel giving is sacrificial giving of strength that changes your status. So when you give away land or you're saving for something special or you know you're giving up uh maybe getting married because you're you're want to do something specific for God. Matthew 19 talks about it. Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much as that famous hundredfold return you probably heard of. Hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. See, notice Jesus is talking about giving away things that change the very status of your life. This isn't just giving money, right? This is giving up houses. This is giving up foundational relationships because you're going on the mission field or entering into some form of ministry where you can't live the kind of life that you would have normally lived. You're giving up children here, not those you have. You don't ever get to give up kids you've had, but giving up having them is what the idea here is. Why would you participate in a life-altering sacrifice like this? Well, Jesus says, for my sake. Other gospels say, for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is talking about sacrifice of positions and how that establishes the church in a way that normal living does not. I think this applies to missionaries. I think this applies to people that become part of the clergy when when those people could be business people and you know make a, a, a stronger living for themselves, but they choose instead to serve the church. Um, this uh, w- would be those who sacrifice greatly for some gospel intent. Let's, it could be as simple as you're saving for a car, and instead of buying the car, uh, you decide that a homeless shelter is more important in your city than getting a new car. So you give that chunk of strength that would have helped you in a way, positioned you differently, but you give it away for the establishment of that shelter. This this is gospel giving, or some special church campaign might qualify here, the building of a building or a school or an outreach, and you downgrade your status for the sake of helping that. That's gospel giving. Then there's almsgiving. This involves giving money to the poor, but it's it's really not just money. It's any material favor or any kind of good deed, physical deed, that's done to assist our needy brothers and sisters in the world. A meal could be advocating for more favorable economic policies to be put in play. It could be volunteering in a homeless shelter. These are all examples of almsgiving. And then there's free will giving. Again, a physical prayer, giving to anything that that grabs you, anything that you have a passion about, anything that excites you, something that matters to you. You just have a sense that this needs to happen. It could be building wells. It could be uh, some outreach that captures your interest. This is beautifully defined in 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. Paul writes, remember this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. See, this is free will. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. For God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This is this idea of free will giving. And then there's tithing. Tithing really has two central purposes that we see in Scripture. One, it's a declaration that you believe God is your source, that you believe God is the one who gives you strength to make any kind of money to begin with or have any ideas that can bring increase into your life. We see it all through, all the way back to the first family. This is where uh, Cain ends up killing Abel, was over this first fruits thing. It's rooted way before Moses brings the law and puts all these rules around it. It's this idea of giving a tenth of what you have as a declaration that God is your source, no one else. We see it with Abram before he's even called Abraham. In Genesis 14, starting in 17, after Abram returned from defeating these kings, uh, it says that he runs into Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. And the text says he was a priest of the of the God Most High, and he blessed Abraham or Abram, and he made this blessing. Then the king of uh, uh, and and it says that Abraham or Abram gave him Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had. And then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread of a, or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. See, in this declaration of Abram's tithe to Melchizedek, and a refusal to take anything from the king of Sodom, Abram is saying, God is my source. Tithing is always connected to that. It's the declaration that no one can say they made us rich, but that God makes us rich or gives us what we have. In Deuteronomy 8, similar thing is said. Um, uh, It says in verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power And my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But the writer pushes back on that and says, but remember, it's the Lord your God, not you're just yourself, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow after gods and worship and bow down to them, he says, you'll end up being destroyed. So it's this idea that 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 we can't, we, our tithe is saying, we do not trust in ourselves or others. We're trusting in God that he gives us power, that he gives us strength, that he gives us wisdom to make wealth, to be able to provide for ourselves and those that we love. So the first reason for tithing is that it is a declaration that God is your source. The second reason, very different than almsgiving, very different than free will offerings, very different than gospel giving. It's tithing. The second reason for tithing is it's given as an expression of helplessness. 
unlike gospel giving or almsgiving or free will giving, tithing is expected of us. Hebrews 7 says, here mortal men receive tithes. (laughs) It's a kind of bondage, actually. It's required, like prayer is required, or like living ethically is expected. I mean, God will love you if you don't pray. God will love you if you you don't live ethically, but you won't flourish. Tithing is harsh. It's like a bind. Unlike gospel giving, unlike almsgiving, unlike offerings, tithing is not a choice you're asked to consider, but a principle that we're told to comply with. And it ties us to the poor for that very reason. Why? Because the poor consistently and constantly endure pain and helplessness just to buy food or to secure shelter. Tithing, in essence, makes us taste this helplessness over and over and over again. I honestly find it odd that so many of... uh, people within the community of faith in the 21st century claim that they feel a passion to help the underprivileged. They feel a passion to help the poor to those that are in the underside of economic power, but feel no obligation to tithe. They want to conflate all giving into just simply giving a little alms giving mixed with some free will offerings, a tad of gospel intention giving and a smattering of what might be considered a tithe. It's kind of muddled giving. But friend, for the church, that's not faithful. And actually, to claim that you care for the poor when you don't do the thing that most spiritually unites you with the poor, the bind to helplessly tithe, to watch 10% of your strength ride off into some giving portal, (laughs) a strength that you could desperately use, To not do so, to not tithe, and to claim that you bear the angst of the poor in your heart, it's nothing short of hypocrisy. I'm not saying this to be judgmental to you. You don't have to tithe. You really don't. You don't have, because God loves you if you don't do stuff. You don't have to pray. God loves you if you don't. You don't have to live ethically. God loves you if you don't. You don't have to love and honor your spouse or raise your children to be responsible citizens of the world. God loves us if we do not, if we're not faithful to the story that we've been invited into. But something happens to you spiritually when you decide to do such things. Not as a legalism. God doesn't bless legalism. Not as an earn. God doesn't bless earning. You don't want what you've earned from God. But we do these things as a leap of faith, asking God to make us better humans, asking God to form us into the kind of people that look like Jesus. So we've been talking about physical praying (laughs) and these other forms of prayer. I invite you into it, practice it, along with these other beautiful forms of prayer. And watch how different it makes you two years, five years, ten years from now. God bless you.